Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Turkeys are synonymous with Thanksgiving. Two-thirds of the farm-raised birds eaten each year in the U.S. come from just six states. And farm-raised turkeys are often preferable to eating over wild ones. Did you know at one time there were no wild turkeys left in Connecticut? Coming up, we're going to hear how they made a comeback. That's later. First, are you one among those who were left shaking your head after Amazon announced it's building its two new headquarters in two of the largest metro areas on the East Coast? The incentives New York City and Virginia are shelling out to the tech giant are harder to swallow to the tune of $2.5 billion. Today, where we live, we're going to take a look at corporate welfare. Later, we'll look at the incentives Connecticut has awarded to companies over the last eight years. Now, first, an investigation by City Lab caught our eye over a practice that's turned up in at least 21 states, and it centers on the property taxes big box stores like Walmart or Target pay to municipalities. Joining us with more is Laura Bliss. She's staff writer at City Lab. Laura, welcome back to our show. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. And you can join our conversation, too. Uh, how do you feel about corporate welfare? Do you think that uh, states and municipalities are giving away too much to, 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 to attract businesses uh, who end up getting uh, too much in return in terms of tax breaks and other incentives? That number to join us, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, uh, Laura, you were reporting on a strategy that many of us probably haven't heard about, this thing called dark store theory, which is having an impact on the revenue being collected by cities and towns. Tell us, what is dark store theory? Yeah, um, happy to explain. And, and and first, I'll just kind of contextualize it. I think, you know, we've definitely spoke to a number of folks in the, in the process of reporting the story who, who sort of made the connection to the kind of corporate welfare, as, as you describe it. Um, and in some ways, th- there's definitely deep connections um, in this in this kind of um, uh, practice. But in other ways, it's sort of the, the flip side. Um, while, you know, communities are, um, in many cases, uh, kind of rolling out the red carpet and, and, you know, handing out extra benefits to try to bring businesses to town. This is actually how um, some of the most familiar um, retail brands in the country are also actively trying to reduce the amount that they are paying to those um, localities, so cities and counties. So to explain... Dark store theory is this kind of um, ominous sounding term that city tax assessors, um, you know, who if you own a home, uh, you'll be very familiar, right? You get a property tax bill um, every year um, that comes from the city assessor's office who decides how much your building is worth. Um, so dark store theory is, is this kind of legal argument that big box retailers, um, including Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, Meyer, Menards, those are sort of more in the Midwest, um, are using to say, hey, city tax assessor, you're doing this way wrong. Um, 
In fact, the value of our brick-and-mortar retail locations should actually be worth, um, in many cases they're saying, about half as much as these cities are saying it is. And the argument that they're making um, essentially stems from um, the number of vacant um, and, and in many cases sort of rehabilitated or second-generation big-box stores that um, are sort of sprinkled across um, the retail landscape. So when a store like a Lowe's or Home Depot comes in, um, oftentimes there may be nothing in a particular location and they, they could build up from scratch, or they might uh, fill an old plaza that's been sitting there from some time. And so in your reporting, you found that in certain states, uh, some of these big box retailers were coming back to their city uh, assessors and saying, You're, we're actually being charged too much in property tax. We should be compared to a vacant store and not uh, what we have today. Today. Yeah, year after year after year. So I'll, I'll just kind of um, take a, a few concrete examples, maybe. So um, uh, this practice, this dark store theory phenomenon, has really been um, focused, concentrated in the upper Midwest. So Michigan has really been hit hard in terms of the impact to city tax revenues. Um, and currently, Wisconsin is really sort of fighting um, at the local level um, with what to do um, with these ins- kind of incessant property tax appeals. Um, so for example, uh, one, one city I visited, uh, Wauwatosa, which is a, a suburb of um, Milwaukee, actually has about um, six active disputes with um, retail locations who are all making some version of this argument. Um, so, and, and not just for one year of um, property assessment, but for multiple years in a row. So, for example, Lowe's, Meyer, an entire mall, a Nordstrom, a Best Buy, they're all making claims um, that their uh, property should be valued as, at about half as much kind of varies a little bit. So just, just for example, that Lowe's, right, the, the city currently values it at $13.6 million. They're arguing they should be uh, valued at seven. Again, for uh, this argument is sort of based off of um, other uh, locations sprinkled throughout the um, region, in, in many cases that are vacant um, or that have been sort of repurposed and, and um, uh, you know, give it a sort of second life that uh, city assessors say is kind of crazy to compare to a, a Lowe's store that might be one of the most successful in the region. This is where we live. On the phone with me, Laura Bliss, staff writer at City Lab. We're talking about her recent investigation into a practice uh, known as dark store theory, uh, where uh, certain big box retailers in certain parts of the country are uh, are appealing their assessments to the towns or cities uh, where they're located uh, to pay less in property tax. Uh, this is something that you said has been an issue more in the Midwest. Why is that, Laura? Um, it's a really good question. Um, I think that we can say that the um, practice really seemed to gain speed um, in Michigan, which was one of the sort of hardest hit states in that region by the recession. So um, sort of think about where this all originated, right? 2008, we had this economic collapse and combined with um, other forces that have been kind of transforming our shopping habits, right? We're sort of moving towards online retail, um, and there might be other kinds of preferences that are coming up. Um, You know, consumer spending, um, you know, has uh, gone kind of up and down over the last decade, and and there's been a a pretty um, noticeable impact, right, to many of the retail chains um, that remain some of the most familiar, and, and that continues, right, just this past year. 
Um, you know, we've seen Toys R Us, uh, you know, declare bankruptcy. We've seen uh, announcements of store closures from Sears um, and uh, Kmart and others. Um, and so Michigan um, and also Wisconsin, you know, have been pretty hard hit by that. And so what this kind of um, larger uh, retail landscape created was was an opening, I, I think, for um, tax lawyers to say, okay, well, well, wait, you know, all of these properties around the region um, are, are vacant or have been repurposed for, um, you know, uses that are that are much less valuable than. Um, you know, the big box store kind of highest and best use to use a little bit of tax assessor lingo. Um, so these, these stores, that even, even the ones that are in business, um, should be uh, significantly less valuable. And, and I just want to sort of highlight, too, I'm, I'm, we're, we're getting into the nitty-gritty of, of the, the kind of argument here, and it's, it's complex. Um, but the thing to focus on here um, is really the impact, right? So Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, right, um, that town I mentioned, um, you know, that could – uh, potentially, you know, lose out to these six disputes um, would owe uh, more than $22 million in tax refunds to those six stores if they were all successful. And then um, that's in addition to the decline in tax revenue that they would be looking at um, year after year after year. When you talk about decline in revenue that cities and towns uh, would see um, if some of these cases, and they have been argued successfully uh, in court, so you could see a reduction in the town services from funding libraries to even police? Um, that's right. I mean, or, you know, the thing that um, a, a, a many assessors in Wisconsin, which is really the state that I focused on, um, really stressed is that, um, you know, in Wisconsin, Every state is a little bit different, right, in terms of how um, it handles property taxes, but there is this property tax levy cap, um, which means that to make up the kind of gap in lost tax revenue, uh, what city assessors could do is shift some of that onto residential homeowners, right? If it was kind of a decision between cutting essential uh, services and, and um, trying to sort of figure out how to make up that gap. So there was an analysis by the Wisconsin League of Municipalities which is an organization there that, that sort of advocates and, and represents um, city officials. And, and they took, took an average um, across seven different cities that are facing this dark store theory issue and found that the average homeowner could wind up paying an, an extra $385 a year in property taxes um, if these dark store appeals were, were widely successful. Now, uh, Laura, in your reporting, you actually uh, tried to survey if this practice was happening in different states, and you heard from 21 different states. Can you walk us through some of those court cases that have been successful um, um, towards uh, the big box retailer that says that the way a town assesses their property um, is not fair? Yeah, so it, it's it's quite um, a mixed landscape in terms of what courts are saying. So just to kind of walk through, like what what exactly the the um, chain of events is here, right? So anybody who owns property, and that includes homeowners, right, has has the right to appeal their property taxes. And generally speaking, certainly in Wisconsin, you know, the way that you do that is, is you, you file an appeal, you submit some paperwork to um, the city or or you know in other states, maybe the county assessor. Um, and then generally speaking, you know, most of the assessors I spoke to in Wisconsin said that their practice, you know, they, they, they try to be sort of as conservative as possible. And so if there's a property owner who has, you know, a good reason that their, you know, valuation should be a little bit different, right? I mean, some homeowners might be, might be familiar with this, like, you know, maybe the city property tax bill one year missed the fact that you made some renovations or you put a new swimming pool or you took it out. 
Um, and so your property is maybe worth a little bit different than they're saying. So this is, this is perfectly legal, right? Um, and in many cases, the city will try to settle for somewhere in the middle um, of the two values. Um, but because these dark store theory appeals are so out of whack, um, in fact, with what assessors say is general practice, and because retail um, locations, uh, you know, retailers keep coming back year after year after year asking for further reductions, in some cases even after they've been given uh, reductions in their property values and therefore, you know, reductions in the, the taxes that they're paying, um, they're increasingly saying, okay, no, we're not going to keep just settling. We're going to kick this up to, you know, a, a circuit court. Um, and in some cases, it's even got up further to the state Supreme Court um, in Michigan, Indiana, um, have all heard uh, dark store theory related cases. There's another one on the on the schedule in Oregon, actually. So this is really spreading. And it seems to me that it's about half and half. So some um, judges that are hearing about this case um, are, you know, quite sympathetic, in fact, to the uh, plight of Walmart and, uh, you know, Menards and Meyer and these kinds of big box retailers who are making this claim. Um, and in other cases, um, judges are saying, you know, kind of sticking to the side of the municipalities um, and, and kind of hearing out, uh, you know, their argument, which is that, hey, actually, you know, property assessment is really complicated. It's not as simple as kind of pointing around to other properties in this case and saying, you know, here's how much this one's worth. Um, so it's really split. And, um, you know, another sort of uh, track towards resolution um, uh, on this issue has been, you know, through state legislatures. So likewise in, in Michigan and also in Indiana um, and now in Wisconsin, there's, there are some attempts to resolve this through changes in the state law. But, but there, too, there's a, quite a lot of lobbying pressure from, um, you know, groups that represent retailers. So it's really not clear which way this is heading. We got a uh, comment from a listener that says uh, a story in Connecticut magazine actually focused in on the money that municipalities are losing with uh, these tax appeals uh, involving big retail companies like Target and Walmart. Also, Stop and Shop, which is a a grocery chain here in New England. Uh, What are the ramifications and how uh, this might, uh, I guess, go forward in terms of not just looking at uh, big box retailers, but are towns and municipalities worried about other types of businesses uh, coming forth with uh, these types of appeals, Laura? Yes. Um, and, and and just to kind of distill the issue <laughs> one more way, I, I realize this is complicated, and um, and I hope any listeners who are interested in the story will, will check it out on, on City Lab, because I think it's, it's explained <laughs> probably more clearly there than I've been able to hear. But The basic dispute here, you know, while the impact to city revenues is really, really clear, in fact, there is, I think, a legitimate dispute happening about how to value a property, um, especially a property like a big box store where there has been so much change in the market recently. Um, And, you know, experts in property tax I spoke to say, you know, there are, this is is a serious, um, you know, debate that's happening and, and it needs to be resolved one way or the other. Um, and there absolutely is a fear that, you know, well, oh, my gosh, like if the, the sort of basic um, <laughs> fundamental um, strategies that city assessors use are being challenged in a way that is gaining some traction and some success in the eyes of courts, well, then, you know, what, what really is stopping other kinds of properties from, um, you know, kind of taking up this argument, too, you know, whether it's industrial properties or, um, you know, fast food restaurants. 
um, or office buildings or hospitals or corporate headquarters, right? Anything that is kind of like an unusual type of property could could plausibly make this claim, and, and in some places they are. Um, so that could spell pretty serious um, fiscal chaos uh, for small towns. Again, uh, on the phone with me is Laura Bliss, a staff writer for City Lab. Again, looking into this a practice known as dark store theory, uh, a practice where uh, certain big box retailers are appealing their assessments, and in some states actually winning uh, these appeals, uh, which results in dramatic reductions in the types of property tax amounts that a town or a city can collect. Um, since doing your story, Laura, because we talk often about corporate welfare, what have been some of uh, the readers' uh, uh, comments and or uh, feedback about this practice? Yeah, well, I, I've been really encouraged to see that you know <laughs> this this issue is not actually all that easy to <laughs> understand for all the reasons we've been talking about, and it's also not that easy to surface because you know most of these property tax appeals happen at the very local level, and there's not necessarily documentation of it, and so it, it did take some doing to sort of just you know figure out okay where is this spreading and and what are the communities that are really being impacted. So I've been quite encouraged to see that I've had readers from Colorado and Massachusetts and elsewhere sort of reaching out and asking, you know, they, they've, we've, we put together sort of a national map about where, where this is happening and folks have reached out to learn more. So that's, that's encouraging because I think it is an issue that needs more reporting on. Um, and yeah, I mean, another kind of connection that's there and to circle back to the start of the conversation is that, you know, for many um, city officials and leaders that I spoke with, um, you know, they described this practice as like kind of a betrayal, right? Um, you know, these are towns that in many cases did offer benefits and tax breaks of, of different kinds to the stores to bring them into town, right? West Bend, Wisconsin, another um, community about an hour north of Milwaukee spent like $16 million um, improving what was vacant farmland to bring in the Menards, which is like a Home Depot sort of chain, and a, a Walmart that are now disputing their assessments and, and saying those buildings that they occupy should be worth about 50% less, which could be a really big challenge for West Bend as it still continues to try to pay down that investment it made just for them. Um, so I think, you know, to, to your earlier point, it does kind of connect to this broader conversation that has really been sparked up by um, the Amazon HQ2 saga and, you know, what cities have done to sort of bring this um, enormous employer to town and, and the kind of pros and cons um, that are a part of that. And you had touched on this earlier, Laura, again, these ideas since the recession, a lot of these uh, retailers have had to close, depending on where they're located, uh, with the emergence uh, of the online giants like Amazon. Um, there's also repercussions there when people aren't going to brick and mortar stores uh, to purchase their products anymore. Yeah, right. Absolutely. It, 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 it's, a, it's a sort of... <laughs> Uh, dark corner <laughs> um, of a uh, rapidly changing landscape that that we've been. I think I think that there's been a, a national conversation about um, for many years. Laura Bliss, again, is a staff writer at City Lab. Uh, we're going to tweet out a link uh, to her uh, story uh, at where we live. Uh, Laura, thanks so much for uh, you know explaining this uh, complicated story, and we look to forward to speaking with you again. 
Thanks so much, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, coming up, there's been a lot of scrutiny over the years over how the state of Connecticut has incentivized certain businesses to move or stay here. Hearst Connecticut's Dan Har will join us with some analysis of these deals, and we want to hear from you. Do you want your tax dollars used to attract big businesses to Connecticut or to get them to stay? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So Connecticut had an offer to Amazon to try and lure the tech giant to build one of its headquarters here. But the State Freedom of Information Commission recently ruled the state's exempt from disclosing the incentives in its failed bid. That's according to a report from the Meriden Record Journal after the newspaper filed a complaint. Now, Amazon in Hartford or in Stamford proved to be a long shot in the end after the company announced it chose Queens and Arlington, Virginia. But has the state's strategy to lure or keep companies here been successful over the last eight years? For more analysis, we're joined in studio by Dan Haar, who's a columnist and associate editor for Hearst Connecticut Media. Dan, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you very much. So tell us, uh, when we think about uh, Amazon's uh, decision in, uh, to build its two East Coast headquarters in Queens and Arlington, did Connecticut ever stand a chance? Absolutely not. Under no circumstances did Connecticut stand a chance. First of all, because we know in the end that Amazon wasn't interested in helping any jurisdiction. That was ridiculous. They were going to go to New York and Washington all along. A lot of people thought Atlanta, perhaps. uh, There were some rumors about um, Charlotte. uh, But it was clearly going to be a place that had major airport uh, uh, facilities. Southern Connecticut does not have that. Uh, Hartford area would have been a slightly better place. fit, I think, in terms of, you know, airport and space and land available. Uh, but again, they were they were looking all along at a, a magnet city, and there are six or seven magnet cities in the country, and we don't have one. <laughs> what about Stanford? I mean, Stanford has a lot going for it, but is it the gridlock and its proximity to New York that uh, can be not something that Amazon would have even considered? Keep naming factors, and I'll just keep saying yes. The airport is the airport was a deal killer. Uh, I think gridlock is it happens everywhere, but of course you you have in Long Island City you can have people living there uh, easily, a little bit more easily. I, I shouldn't say living with public transportation a little bit more easily, but uh, the airport was the deal killer. Uh, the fact that uh, you know Stanford's an edge city t- to New York. Uh, and so they were not looking to be in edge cities. They were looking to be in cities, or at least on the edge of the very edge of cities. Uh, so that's where they are, and, and God bless them. And as you see in New York, some of the people, especially Democrats, are unhappy about the amount spent. Uh, they are saying $48,000 per job. Amazon is saying that that's what they're spending. Uh, Good Jobs First, which is the watchdog private uh, uh, nonprofit that looks at these deals, is saying uh, $112,000 per job for a total of $4.6 billion, and it's all spelled out. Uh, so I tend to believe them. <laughs> so when we think about uh, economic developments, a lot of the focus the last eight years, depending on uh, uh, which side of the aisle you're on, is uh, whether the deals that under Governor Malloy's administration have actually been a good thing for the state, trying to lure certain companies. We know there have been some successes, but also some failures. You've been covering this for a long time, Dan. How would you rate uh, the economic deals that the state has uh, put out there? Uh, like democracy, it's the worst system in the world, and the only thing worse is not having it. 
Uh, it, it, it's a game that states have to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, every single candidate, and I just wrote a column about this, Every, without any exception, without any party exception, Oz Griebel, you know, the, the uh, petitioning candidate, Democrats, Republicans, all said, we're going to get away from this. We're going to get away from this. It doesn't make sense to bribe companies. It makes sense to build up our infrastructure and make companies want to be here. And that's great rhetoric on the campaign trail. Every state is involved in incentives for companies. It's a game you cannot get out of. And Connecticut has generally been mid to upper middle of the pack. Early years of the Malloy administration, there were some very bigger, much bigger deals. Jackson Labs was a good deal, but controversial because of the cost per job. Uh, generally speaking, it's just simply part of the game. Uh, the failures in Connecticut have been um, not so much big companies taking the money and running as the deal's not working out. And and Alexion was the most prominent of those. It was initially a first five program. First five is the the bigger company incentives. Uh, and there have been 19 of them, not including Alexion, that, that didn't work out. So they moved their headquarters to Boston, gave the money back, and, and that's the way it's worked. Uh, so because we got the money back, is that still considered a failure, Dan? I, I don't know. It's like a metaphysical question. <laughs> I don't, but it, I think in Small Business Express, which to me is the more – that's about 1,000 companies a year. And there, there, there are grants and loans totaling – let's say 50,000 or maybe even less to a hundred or two hundred thousand uh, dollars and that is uh, in my mind there are two categories of those incentives to those small businesses one is companies that bring in revenues from the outside and the other is companies that are what I call the butcher the baker and the candlestick maker that are here anyway retail or, or you know companies that serve this area and those are the ones that, in my view, should not get any money. Some of those have failed. And that, in those cases, the money simply disappears. But that's not big money. Connecticut is spending a lot of money on this. Uh, for the most part, it is generating the jobs that these programs say. It's a pretty high success rate. And I look at the numbers and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're spending in the range of 175 to $200 million a year on giving incentives to companies. And they are tending to create jobs at a rate of about twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars a job. I know you're going to get called. Oh, Jackson Labs is a million dollars a job, but for the most part, that's the range. And the idea is that when you do an economic analysis, the taxes paid by those individuals, those employees, over a relatively short period of years, pays back the fiscal cost of of uh, investing in it. And so, in that sense, it works. In that sense. You're hearing Dan Haar, who's a columnist and associate editor for Hearst Connecticut Media. This is where we live as we look again at some of the incentives that uh, the state of Connecticut has given to companies to either try to get them to come here or to retain them. Uh, We know this was a hot topic during uh, the governor's election. You can join the conversation. How do you want your tax dollars used? Do you think it's a smart way uh, to keep companies here for job creation uh, and to help uh, with uh, tax revenue, too? The number 860-275-7266. Dan, you referenced your column where you said that this uh, incentive package is part of any governor's toolbox, period. But then you also give a little history on how it all got started here in Connecticut. So tell us about, uh, again, the administration of Lowell Weicker and how this became um, more common after that. It was in, uh, uh, yes, as you said, uh, Governor Weicker, uh, Joe McGee, who's now at the uh, Fairfield County Business Council, is the um, was the economic development commissioner. And that was when they did some pretty big deals for the banks in 
uh, Stanford. I believe RBS and UBS were then. I could be wrong about one, the other, or both. But generally, we trace the very large expansion. Uh, not that there weren't deals before that uh, under O'Neill, but the really large expansion started then. And it wasn't it wasn't just Lowell Weicker and Joe McGee in Connecticut. It was happening all across the country at that time. This was a sort of new paradigm is if you want companies, what, what you know, when you really want to think about it as a, an economic phenomenon, you think that when when we were kids, a lot of us were kids, uh, the, 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 people followed jobs. Right, people follow jobs. Where there, Pratt and Whitney came here during the World War II expansion, and forty thousand people worked in East Hartford, North Haven, which, by the way, is the site. The North Haven Pratt plant is now going to be the site of the Amazon third location in Connecticut, which was a twenty-five million dollar. The the records say twenty, but it's up to twenty-five million dollar incentive for Amazon, and Amazon has been doing this all over the country. So companies would come. And they would land where they land for whatever reasons that included whatever, and people would move there. Thousands and thousands of people moved to Connecticut to work at Pratt and Whitney in the 40s and beyond. Uh, the new paradigm in the 90s started to be jobs follow people. Companies go where people want to be, right? So my kid lives in Boston. She's going to be in Boston. That's where she wants to be. So jobs are going to follow her. Uh, and in order to get people to want to be in a place and jobs to want to be in a place, that's where the money started. And that really was the phenomenon that grew up in the 90s and has not only not abated, but has increased. When we think about uh, job creation, uh, you know, something that we've heard from listeners, it's great if, say, Amazon is building a warehouse uh, in, in the state of Connecticut. But how much are those jobs paying people? Uh, the Amazon jobs pay better. Uh, they, we never see the actual amounts, but what we tend to see is what percent of retail. So when the Amazon announcement came out a year ago about North Haven and the old Pratt & Whitney plant, this you're talking 855,000 square feet, right? So that's a, you know, an acre is 42,000 square feet. So that's a lot of, it's a lot of building, 1,800 people, right? So Amazon is replacing displacing a lot of retail jobs, as we obviously know, and as you talked about in the last segment. Uh, but those jobs pay 30% more than a typical retail warehouse job. What does that mean? It means that they're close to sustainable in Connecticut. You know, it's a tough state to, to be sustainable. But, uh, I mean, I think that's a great question. The bottom line is that the companies would say, with the incentives, we're going to be able to pay more. Uh, and and I think pay has generally been not part of the equation of debate. The debate has been payback, right? How how much, how fast do we get the money back? And then the biggest question of all is not the formula, because DECD does put everything into what they call an input-output formula. You put it in, what do you get out? Uh, and the question really is is more about would they have done this anyway? Right, so it's the moral hazard. Do you pay money to somebody who would have done it anyway? And the biggest and most controversial example of that in Connecticut was Bridgewater Associates. Were you going to get the bridge? <laughs> yeah, okay. Ask the question then. So uh, Governor Malloy got a lot of flack because yes. of uh, Bridgewater, and how much money did they get? Uh, up to fifty-two million dollars. Twenty-two million was the controversial portion, which is the loan. Thirty million up to up to thirty in tax credits, and that was a first five company. First five is really just a fancy word for the 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 first year. There were five, and there have been nineteen so far, and they were the bigger deals. So very controversial because Bridgewater, at one hundred and sixty-nine billion dollars, was and maybe still is the largest hedge fund. Um, and it's it's loaded with gazillionaires, 
And I've always said that that's exactly why this is the best deal Malloy ever did. Um, there's, there's very little more mobile than a financial services company uh, that, that has laptops, uh, you know, and they're all in the cloud anyway, right? So the cloud isn't in Connecticut. So maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it doesn't matter. So 1,400 people at Bridgewater could pick up and move tomorrow. Um, and obviously, it's, it's harder than that because they have an enormous expertise of people that live in Fairfield County. But it's, it's not too terribly hard to evolve away from a place if you don't have giant machinery and so forth. And what would Connecticut stand to lose if Bridgewater were to leave? I can't even calculate it because we don't know the salaries. But Ray Dalio's salary alone, one year he made $4.9 million, according to one of the hedge fund uh, magazines. Um, billion, did I say mil- billion? I meant to say billion dollars. Billion dollars, mm-hmm. right? So that's 49,000 people making a million dollars each. So one person's pay makes up for the entire package. In a typical year, he may make a billion. This is where we live. Again, Dan Haar's here as we reflect back on the economic incentives awarded under the Governor Malloy administration. You heard uh, Dan mention First Five. There's also Small Business Express. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. We want to, before we uh, talk about uh, incoming Governor uh, Ned Lamont, uh, when we think about how states are competing against each other, this practice isn't going to go away anytime soon, right? Because if Connecticut were to say, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore, there's New York, there's Massachusetts. Uh, it would be a, a bad move for Connecticut. Yeah, the big rap on General Electric moving from headquarters from Fairfield to Boston was, oh, they moved, uh, taxes were too high in Connecticut and, and, and the incentives didn't mean anything in Connecticut. Well, they moved to a higher tax place, which is Boston, and they got $145 million to move 800 jobs. Uh, so, you know, that's a sort of upper middle of the pack incentive, and that's exactly an illustration of what we're talking about. We got a Facebook comment from Sharon who writes, uh, uh, we need another name for this. I think we were talking about corporate welfare because it's not capitalism as we used to know it, literally bribing corporations to stay in business and to do it in a particular location with the bribes paid for by the working class. As Joe on Twitter picks that up, glad this is being talked about. As one of my members said the other day, Connecticut takes from the little guy to give to the big guy. Well, the idea is the big guy hires the little guy. I don't think it works terribly well for the average person. But the, like I said, it's not a system that Connecticut can can just simply pull out of. Uh, the, the myth that there's some kind of free market that, that these incentives are meddling with is, I find, comical. Uh, there is no such thing as a free market. The, the government is a third of the government of, of, of commerce, and that's the way it is. And so the government both sets the rules and is a customer and is a scale tipper, and that's just the way it is. Uh, Dan, uh, what kind of perspective uh, do you think uh, Ned Lamont is going to bring uh, to the governor's office? We you know, heard him talk a lot about emphasis uh, that's uh, coming to Hartford. Uh, what kind of deal did emphasis get? I believe it was uh, up to $12 million in grants from DECD to uh, reach certain job creation milestones. Infosys is a really good example of what we're talking about in respect to what Ned Lamont says he's going to do. Okay. Infosys required a whole lot of outreach by Ned Lamont uh, and his friend Indra Nui, who's the outgoing CEO of, of PepsiCo. Did she leave yet? Did she step down yet? I think she did. Yeah, okay. <laughs> she, so, she's, so, so she, uh, through uh, connections at Yale School of Management, uh, where they both went, uh, they knew the CEO of Infosys, who they uh, cajoled to come up to Hartford. Uh, and, 
And the famous story that Ned has told many times is the driver of the of the car at, it was bad mouthing Hartford. And Indra Nui talks about when she came here in 19, I believe, 78 or 79 or 80 to go to Yale School of Management from India. The driver of that car said how great Connecticut was and how, you know, this is the best state. So this is what's changed in 40 years. Uh, Infosys required a lot of cooperation by the local CEOs and the local uh, business executives in the Hartford area to really sit down and say, this is why this is a great place for you to be, not only because of the insurance industry, but because of other reasons as well. And that's what Ned Lamont is pushing. That's what he's saying. We're going to know these people. We're going to tell them why we're the better place. And if there's an incentive deal, oh, sure, that bo- but that won't be the primary thing. But, of course, $12 million is $12 million, and without it, it ain't happening. When we hear so often about how Connecticut's broke, where does this money come from to incentivize these companies? You and me. <laughs> this is uh, this is bonded money. That, uh, again, I, I mentioned it's it's been a range of, hundred let's say, 175 to I believe it's been up to 250, but in the recent couple of years, let's say just under $200 million total, and that's bonded. And hypothetically, some of the money should be coming back. All of the money comes back to the general fund according to the formulas. The question isn't, does the money come back? The question is, would it have come back anyway? But in terms of, uh, uh, it's not a revolving fund. In other words, the money doesn't come back to DECD. There are some revolving funds in the state apparatus, which we're not talking about. For for the most part, the money comes into the general fund. And so it's bonded money. It's borrowed money. Uh, And it's not inexpensive, but it's also well worth it at rates of three and a quarter percent that the state pays. And when you say bonded money, so uh, my children who are three and seven, if they continue to live in Connecticut, they're the ones that are going to be paying this bill. Yeah, I'm sick and tired of us protecting our our (laughs) grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I think we should just foist everything onto them because I want to be able to sell my house. And so I want a state that functions well and, you know, let my daughter and her children and their children worry about it in the future. I be, I'm being facetious, but the point is that that's really what we're doing when we, when we mortgage a house as well. Uh, what role does the General Assembly play in this at all? General Assembly uh, it, it hypothetically controls the, uh, the money. Um, as you know, bond money goes through the state bond commission, which the governor chairs. And traditionally, the governor has had a much stronger hand over bonded money than over regular operational spending in the state, which has to go through the arduous process of uh, the legislative budget. Bonded money tends to be easier for the governor to move around. Uh, we've been, again, focusing a lot on uh, talking about this, uh, given uh, what happened with Amazon uh, and their uh, big uh, marketing uh, scheme <laughs> to get as much attention as possible to choose uh, two places that make sense for this tech giant. But Wisconsin actually lured a tech giant Foxconn uh, to their state, and their incentive package is even larger than the one Amazon is getting. Per job it is, I think, uh, well, it's it, it, it's larger, according to the official numbers, at the rate of $2 billion. I think it's 2.1. By the way, the largest ever was Boeing, $8.7 billion with a B to stay in Seattle uh, or near Seattle. That's just crazy numbers, but it's thousands and thousands of jobs and they pay a lot of money and they're manufacturing jobs, which is what pe- people seem to want. Uh, Foxconn makes, I think, flat screen TVs. Is that what it is there? It's it's electronics in any case. And Foxconn was famous for some of the labor abuses uh, in China working for Apple. Uh, and that big investigation in, I think, 2015. But Foxconn has come to Wisconsin at a rate of, uh, what is it per job? It's uh, $60,000, $70,000, and they're not that high-paying jobs. Most people think Wisconsin got the raw deal on that one. 
Again, Dan Haar was with us uh, from uh, Hearst Connecticut Media as we talk about, uh, again, economic deals and incentives the state um, has to broker to keep certain companies here and try to attract uh, new ones. Uh, we talked about uh, the incoming governor, uh, Ned Lamont, and what we can assume to expect from him. Uh, before we go, you mentioned uh, DECD under uh, Catherine Smith, and uh, they got a lot of heat in September because their numbers weren't accurate for the auditors and how much uh, money the state was actually pulling from these deals? You know, we have a saying in the economics writing business, this is that numbers are always fungible. And and I, I think in the end, it, 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 that report by the auditors is going to, it certainly is, it, I have no reason to believe it's inaccurate. But the problem with trying to pin down jobs and the number of jobs created is that it, it, it's really, I mean, I've tried to get numbers from companies and I get that I'm not giving them millions of dollars with contracts. But it's really hard. Are you talking about full-time jobs? Are you talking about total jobs? Are you talking about FTEs? And there are lots of ways to, to analyze it. The bottom line is that these deals are a shockingly small number of jobs in an economy with 1.7 million jobs, right? The total number is in the few tens of thousands, which is a few percent of Connecticut's jobs for all this money. The question is whether it creates enough of a of, of a catalyst to jumpstart the economy in Connecticut, whether the jobs are off by some or not, and that is being looked into. And I think the DECD has already said we're doing things differently. The, the state is not in position to stop doing something that's an established catalyst for job creation. Dan Har again, we'll uh, tweet out your latest column uh, at Where We Live, columnist and associate editor of Hearst Connecticut Media. Dan, thanks for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you having me and uh, have fun talking about it. It's a little early in the day for wild turkey, isn't it? <laughs> Speaking of which, do you like dark meat or white meat? Oh, boy. I used to be dark meat, and I've moved to white meat. <laughs> this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. That's Dan Har. And coming up, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving or Turkey Day for some of us who really look forward to eating the large bird. Coming up, we're going to hear about how wild turkeys actually disappeared at one point from the state of Connecticut. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know turkeys are synonymous with Thanksgiving and most of the birds raised on farms for holiday dinners, two thirds of them come from just six states. And while domestic turkeys or farm raised turkeys are often preferable to eat over wild ones, at one time there were no wild turkeys left in Connecticut. Do you have not a gaggle, not a flock, but rather a rafter of turkeys that hang around your neighborhood? Uh, For more on their return to our state, joining us by phone, is Michael Gregonis. He's a wildlife biologist with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection and had worked on Connecticut's wild turkey program. Michael, welcome to the show. Good morning. So we know turkeys are a symbol of our country, especially around Thanksgiving, when we think about Thanksgiving dinner. Tell us, though, about the wild turkey that most of us see in our neighborhoods and what caused them to go extinct in our state. Well, a wild turkey is a very majestic bird. It can fly over 50 miles an hour and run over 10 miles an hour. Um, It has been in our state uh, since its native species to the state of Connecticut, and it disappeared, and the last documented bird was about 1813, and after that, the bird had disappeared from Connecticut, and it wasn't until 1975 that we reintroduced wild turkeys from New York. We got 22 birds from New York State, 
that were truly live trapped wild turkeys and they were released up in uh, Great Mountain Forest and since that time those birds have done very well we conducted another 14 releases across our state and brought of 356 birds to various parts of the state, and the turkeys are doing very well. It's uh, one of the greatest wildlife management success stories that we have. So uh, just to, to go back, Michael, so when, when they disappeared from the state of Connecticut in the 1800s, that was due to habitat loss? Primarily. Uh, back in the 1600s, when Europeans first settled the state of Connecticut, about 95% of the state was forested. By the 1850s, that was down to about 34%. And because of loss of forested habitat, those birds were pushed into smaller and smaller pieces of habitat, which made them more vulnerable to predation, disease, and, and of course, the farmers in the area were utilizing them as a food source as well. And so the wild turkey program that started uh, in Connecticut, uh, the father of the turkey program, I understand, was Steve Jackson, and you brought in turkeys from New York State. That's correct. Uh, It was uh, Allegheny National Forest right on the New York-Pennsylvania line, and that's where Connecticut first obtained their wild turkeys. All the other releases in the state of Connecticut were birds that were rocket netted in our state and then transferred across the state into suitable habitat. And when they were reintroduced, uh, how how did it go? Were there years where there were less uh, baby turkeys or uh, what parts of the state actually where you saw the population flourishing? Um, from the 1975, it started slow, but the birds they took off pretty well, and they got to the point where we could trap those birds and move them around. Through the 80s and into the early 2000s, the Connecticut's turkey population grew exponentially. And from 2000 to present, we've had a little bit of decline, but the birds are doing very well across the entire state. Uh, so well, in fact, that there are still tur- there are now turkey hunts in Connecticut. Yes, we had established our first turkey hunting season. It's a spring season in 1981, and 428 permits were available that year, and that's the number of hunters, and they harvested 21 turkeys. The wild turkey is not an easy wildlife species to harvest. And why is that? They have excellent eyesight, excellent hearing, and have the ability to respond to danger in a blink of the eye. Uh, I understand that this uh, reintroducing the wild turkey back to Connecticut is one of the state's greatest uh, conservation stories, but any lessons that state biologists have learned from this particular program that could help with uh, conserving other animals in our state? Yes. uh, One of the things, research is very important, and initially with the wild turkeys in the state of Connecticut, biologists felt that the wild turkey needed 6,000 contiguous acres of forested habitat to survive. And we now know that that's not true. We see turkeys in our neighborhoods all the time. So you have to study the birds and find out what their needs are. And over time, you you adapt your management strategies to, to those needs. Uh, we just have a, a couple of minutes left. And I'm curious, uh, we do hear about stories where turkeys harass certain neighborhoods, and that's because of human behavior feeding these turkeys, Michael? Yes, quite often. I will get up on my soapbox a little bit. Uh, There's enough 
food resources in Connecticut's woodlands that it's not necessary to feed turkeys. And there's two very good reasons not to feed the turkey. One is sometimes they get habituated to people and they will create nuisance situations where they actually get aggressive towards people. The other thing is when you feed turkeys at a bird feeder for an extended period of time, there is a greater chance that disease can be passed from one bird to the next, and that's never good for any wildlife population. When a nuisance turkey uh, does come across a neighborhood like in Stanford uh, in the last few years, what happens? How does DEEP get involved? Uh, we try to work with the homeowners in the neighborhood and have them first remove any food source, and usually that will cause the problem to subside. Uh, also, we have the homeowners harass the birds and make them feel unwelcome in, in the area. <laughs> you have the humans harass the turkey. <laughs> yeah, I, that, and that does work from time to time. Again, I've been speaking with Michael Gregonis, who's a wildlife biologist with the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. He worked on Connecticut's wild turkey program to bring back uh, the wild turkey uh, to Connecticut uh, due to habitat loss. Uh, they left, but they were able to reintroduce some wild turkeys from New York State. Uh, before we let you go, uh, because Thanksgiving's this week, can you give us one turkey fact to stump our relatives, Michael? Um. Something we don't know about the turkey. That they have the ability to fly over 50 miles an hour. A lot of people don't know that. That's a pretty fast bird then, right? Yes, it is. My three-year-old told me that baby turkeys are known as poults. That is correct. And then one last question for you, Michael. Do we know why we call a group of turkeys a, a rafter? I'm not familiar with that term. I usually call them a flock. A flock. Well, we want to thank Michael Grionis uh, for playing along with us at the end, a wildlife biologist with DEEP. Thank you for your work. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to our technical produ- producer, Kion Wolf. Also thanks to Lydia Brown. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the pressure that are on middle and high school students uh, to get good grades, to be involved in extracurriculars. Uh, do you think kids are getting too much press- pressure to succeed today? We want to hear from you. That show coming up tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.